everybody. Welcome back to the Real Estate Rundown. Today, I've got the pleasure of having a guest on the show named Vina Jetty. Vina is with me from, where are you from? I'm in Dallas, Texas, North Dallas. Dallas, Texas, of all places. Yes. One of the hottest markets in the nation. You're seeing expansive growth there. What are you guys doing in that area right now? Yeah, so um, we actually are not really finding a whole lot of deals in the Dallas market, to be completely frank. Uh, We have a significant portfolio here, but I think that we're seeing better opportunities and more opportunities in other markets. So it's in my backyard if I find a deal, great. But as of right now, it's just such a hot market, like you said. You know, and that's funny. I'm seeing seeing a lot of people that are recognizing what they're after and realizing that the market that they've been they've been operating in for the last couple of years doesn't have any more of that. And so they're having to jump to another market. How are you picking your markets? How are you finding where to go? Yeah. So I'm actually like pretty anal about how I look at my markets and which markets I'm willing to enter. So I take about 18 months, usually on average, before I enter any one market. Um, So before anybody would ever see a deal from me in X market, I have been studying that city and that market for the last 18 months because I want to understand the fundamentals of the market. I want to underwrite hundreds of deals there before we go into a deal because I need to know if this is realistic, if these markets actually are going to produce the returns that I think they're going to produce. Um, is there stability within the market? Is there population growth? So I look at all of those metrics for the you know year or two before entering those markets. And so a few years ago, I've actually entered into the Florida markets, and I'm actually in process of entering into the Georgia market as well. And what was it that attracted you to those markets? Yeah, so... Um, First and foremost, I generally like to be in the redder states because they're typically a little bit more landlord friendly. Um, So that's kind of the first thing I look at. The second thing I look at, I want to look at population growth. So I want to see a steady increase of potential renters coming in. And I want to see the demographics of those renters. So I want to make sure they can afford my rent. And more importantly, I want to make sure they can afford the premium that I'm about to charge them on that rent. Um, So those are kind of the things I look for. I look for markets that are not very... Um, focused on any one or two sectors. I like to look at markets that have diversity in their jobs. So no one major event can, you know, swing any sector into a potentially bad rental situation. Um, You know, the example I like to use when I'm talking about it is Fargo, North Dakota. And I have a good friend who lived there for seven years. And he's like, why are you always hating on Fargo? And I'm totally not. But they experienced a massive real estate boom when there was all this oil to be had there. And after that, what happens when the price of the barrel goes down like we've seen, then what do you do? Um, So I look for markets with very diverse job sectors. I look for markets that are not dependent on any one industry and that have the ability to continue supporting jobs that have longstanding companies that have headquarters or are moving headquarters to those locations. So so let's talk about Florida. Right now, we're uh, Florida, when I think of Florida, because I think of Florida, like probably most people, I think of retirees and tourists. Yeah. So, so now we're in a situation where tourism is obviously not yeah. doing very well. Mm-hmm. What is it about Florida that the rest of us are missing because we just classified it as, oh, that's retirees and tourists? Yeah, so um, I actually we're seeing a large population growth into so we're historically in Orlando and Jacksonville, we're seeing a large population growth, um, even amongst the younger demographics, because we're seeing people coming in from 
the New York cities. And especially now during COVID when everyone's like, oh, well, everything I'm doing is on Zoom. So I don't actually need to be in New York City anymore, spending $5,000 a month on rent for this studio I share with seven people. Um, Now we're seeing people moving. That sounds like a good deal, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Shows you how out of touch, that's how long I've been living in Texas where the cost of living is cheap. I don't know what that actually costs. Uh, And so I think that we're seeing people wanting to be in areas where they can go outside and they can go to the beach and they can enjoy the outdoors, which they maybe can't really do in those more expensive East Coast or either, even like LA markets. So we're seeing a lot of migration there. We also, um, Orlando has actually a massive uh, tech boom. So they're seeing their tech jobs are growing by a faster rate than Silicon Valley has pre-COVID, I should say. Um, Today, I think nobody's really growing right now, but I expect that to kind of pick back up. Also, there's a lot of company headquarters um, within the Orlando market that are not dependent on tourism. And I think that those are important factors to consider when you're going into any market is who are your tenants going to be? Who are the people that are going to be able to afford your rent? Yeah. And, you know, we're experiencing the same thing here in Idaho with people being able to disconnect from Silicon Valley. And, you know, we've always seen an influx of people moving here for a way of life. And I think it's the same with Georgia and and with Florida, where they're now realizing that I can keep my high paying job because traditionally we have not had that in Idaho. We haven't had a really robust, uh, you know, cost of, of, well, cost of living has been lower, but so has, has pay. But I, I think that's, that makes a lot of sense that, that Florida is now being disconnected from uh, New York City or being, you know, mm-hmm. the jobs are being disconnected. So did you know that that was coming or did you just get lucky on that, on that job disconnection item? So I think that we actually were starting to see it a little bit, right? Like millennials historically have not, they don't want to own property. They don't want to settle down. They historically do not stay at their first job forever and ever like our parents' generation did. Um, So we were seeing things like WeWork and Uber and, you know, all of these Lyft, all of these different like co-ownership and like collective movement companies getting a lot of traction with the millennial crowd. Um, And so I think that it was something that we were working toward anyway. I think this kind of sped up the timeline and I think everybody's doing it now, not just like millennials or the, what is it? Gen Z is that the next generation after millennials. Uh, And so I think we're seeing, you know, the adaptation to technology happening at a faster and larger scale than we might have otherwise. But I do think that that was what we were always moving toward. I think also that tech jobs just in general, which is what Orlando has a massive growth on. um, They generally speaking can work from home. And so I think that we were going to see that regardless within Orlando. So let's talk about now that you've picked your market, what is your focus on when you're really looking to underwrite the deal and, and, and bring it to life? I mean, what are, what are the things that you're looking for? Yeah. So I think now we are in a different market today than we were even like six months ago or eight months ago, pre COVID and post COVID. Um, So when we were underwriting Pre-COVID, we underwrote with a lot of different assumptions that I think today are probably a little bit too aggressive. 
Um, so I'm actually entering the Atlanta markets now, Marietta, Georgia, and um, there we've underwritten our deal with a 0% rent growth for year one. So we're assuming we're not even adding a single dollar on rent. Uh, we are assuming that we have $0 of additional income coming in, even though there are programs that are already implemented on the property that are getting rental income growth month over month. We've taken that down to zero from the T12 for um, the first year. We are underwriting with zero renovations for the first year. We are stress testing our NOI into the negative numbers from the T12 to see what happens if you know bad debt increases or vacancy increases? Uh, vacancy is another one we've changed now. We are stress testing up to 10%. We're typically underwriting at one to two points higher than what the market um, metrics call for. And what I mean by that is like Yardi, Axiometrics, CoStar, all of those, they'll give you indicators of where they think rents are gonna be one, two, three, four, five years out. And so we take those numbers and then we actually make them a little bit more conservative. Um, so that's typically how we're underwriting today. And I think every day as we get better and better information, we continue tweaking the model so that we can be more and more in line with what we realistically think is going to happen versus what we hope happens, which is that everyone wants to rent for like three X the rent, which, you know, that's a pipe dream. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's been something that I have seen and I've been preaching for the last year and a half mm -hmm. and I've watched people you know, that as you've watched the market get spicier, we've seen where people are paying retail uh, yeah. for their value add and then adding 25% in CapEx and then assuming an 8% rent growth. And, you know, everything comes down to how hard can you force the appreciation. And the reality is right now you can't. And that's why I've, I've leaned, we do development where everything is, is creation. Everything that we do is creating that initial value. So all we've got to do is look at our neighbors and we can see what our values are going to be or our rents are going to be as far as the creation of that. But I've watched people get in trouble and as you have too, where they've, where they've made all those assumptions based on really awesome projections and, and now they're looking at it going, ah, we can't make that happen. You know, yeah. and now not only did we spend our capex, we can't get the rent growth. And so now we need to raise additional capital to, for the vacancies that we're finding. Yeah, and I, I actually more than the vacancy, what um, I'm seeing on our assets is the bad debt. That's a concern. Um, it, you know, if I had vacancy, that would be great because that means I just have to get enough advertising and marketing out there to get someone new in who can pay rent. I can't right. get units back from tenants that are refusing to leave in some of our assets. Um, so. Right. I think that bad debt is actually going to be a big indicator um, of how deals are underwritten in the future. I also think that going forward, I don't think that we're actually in as much of like a value add market as we are in a other income market now. Um, you mean as far as you as a company or you, us as a, as a multifamily nation? Um, well, definitely us as a company, but I also think just generally speaking, um, people are stuck at home. They want the amenities. They will pay an extra 15 bucks a month to have, you know, whatever amenities are available, like an amenity fee, right? They'll pay an extra $50 a month to have access to a pool because their kids are driving them crazy. You know, like I think that before we might not have seen those premiums. I think now we'll see people that are willing to pay 25 bucks for valet trash. Um, 
And we were seeing that before, but I think more so now um, is when you want to be looking at assets that have great amenity packages on them or available to be implemented. You know, and that's one of the things that uh, I have found to be very important with, with my property management site is yeah. that we are making sure that the easiest money to make is not the forced appreciation. No. It is, it is the additional income. And one of the easiest ways to make the additional income is by the smiley faces of the people you hire. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, that's absolutely true. And Because now you're stuck living and working with these people that used to just be your leasing manager. Now, now they're your coworker. <laughs> this is exactly it, right? <laughs> they're your shadow now. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, yeah, and I think that that is probably like one of the most crucial things in today's market is looking for those assets that have amenities where people can see themselves spending 100% of their time there or that have enough room that they can send their children far away from them outside of the apartment to play um, because that's generally the demographic that we target. We want that. We want to be that last stop on their way to buying a house. Um, right. So our demographic is typically going to be someone who's, you know, a little bit more stable in their income. They maybe have a family. They're saving for a down payment. Um, that's historically who we've gone after. Yeah. And those are definitely, you know, and that's another thing that we've implemented. And I've, I've told my staff many times, we want to be $35 more than the guy next door, mm -hmm. because if uh, there's not a lot of uh, people that don't have $35 of discretionary income in their life. And if they pick us for whatever reason over the, over the complex next door, they're going to be stickier because yeah. they're going to stay with us because nobody likes moving. But if you're dealing with that customer, that is looking for the best deal or the, or the one month rent concession that's going to move every year. You're not dealing with the person like you described. that's more yep. stable. That's looking at, look, I don't want to do this again until I'm buying a house. Exactly. And then you're, then you're, you're dealing with that uh, sticky tenant that's there for two or three or four years before you turn over the unit. You're able to keep them around. You're not having all of the leasing activity that you would need, the cleaning and all that stuff, it's really a much better financial factor. Mm -hmm. And you got a little bit more rent out of the, out of the unit. Yeah, and they're also, you know, they're historically, they're paying rent on time. They're- There's that. <laughs> yeah, which we like. Um, and they're taking right. care of the unit too, right? Like they're not bashing in windows and, you know, they care about it. It's home for them. So right. they take care of it as if it's their own. Yeah. So what, what, what makes a, I mean, so now you've talked about, okay, we, we like, we like the amenities, we like underwriting in certain areas, but then, then you've got to involve your investors and now you've, you've got your deal, you put that together, right? And, and now you're going out to your investors. What does that process look like for you? Yeah. So I have, I keep very close relationships with my investors. Um, so my investors are actually about 80% of them are invested in two or more deals with me. Um, so wow. my investors repeat invest with me. And I tell them very frankly, right out of the gate, look, if you're investing with me, the second I give you a big check back, I'm going to come back and ask you to give it back to me for the next deal. And <laughs> so, yeah, I'm like very honest, like they will always know what I'm, and you know, and, but the truth of the matter is, is if they're not writing me that check back, then I did something really wrong, right? So um, most of my investors invest with me across multiple deals. And for me, like the highest compliment is actually when they refer their friends and family to me. Um, 
because to me that's saying not only do I trust you, I want this person I really care about to trust you. Yeah. Um, I think the way we've kind of built that loyalty is by always putting investors first. Um, so at the company that um, I'm doing this Atlanta deal with, for example, we actually, I have a JV partner on it, Ellie. Um, and what we're doing is we actually are writing in to our PPM some of the things that we're telling investors. So we write in there that um, between the GPs, we're planning on investing about a million dollars of our own capital um, and that means that we are putting our dollars at risk right alongside of our investors. And I always, I invest in every deal that my name goes on, whether it's through Enzo or Vive. Um, my capital goes in right alongside our investors, like my husband and I personally invest. And yep. I think that's really important because yes. if I'm going to ask you as an investor to take a risk and I think this project is so great, well, I need to put my money where my mouth is because how can I ask you to risk your dollars if I'm not willing to risk mine? Yeah. Um, so my dollars not only go at risk alongside of our investors, typically our dollars go at risk first too. Um, the other change, like big change that I think we've made that maybe a lot of other syndicators haven't or don't do is um, we write it in, we are now write it into our PPM that if we're not hitting our pro forma, like our pref rates, we don't take our asset management fee. Um, and we write it right in there because we, we verbally communicate it and we have done that in the past historically. If there's for whatever reason, if there's a month where we have to just halt distributions, which has happened in during COVID when we had a period of uncertainty, um, we didn't take any of our fees on the GP side because very honestly, if an investor is not getting what we had projected, we shouldn't be either. Um, it's well, just and you know, Vina, as you know, this, this, is a, this is a trust game, right? I mean, yeah. like you said very clearly, your investors aren't investing with you because they're really hot on Marietta, Georgia. They're investing yeah. with you yeah. because they trust you. They believe in you. And when you have written that out, like you have that, Hey, listen, guys, we're, you know, because there's so many, there's so many deals out there right now. How do you set yourself apart is you let the investors know that this isn't, this isn't me trying to sell this so that I get an asset management fee and 10 asset management fees later, I can afford my Ferrari. No. This is about me creating a lifestyle for everyone. Exactly. And it's you betting on me, me doing my job. And if I'm not doing my job, then you're going to get the return as best we can provide it through the bumpy times. I'm exactly. going to have my nose to the grindstone because obviously I can't, yeah, yeah. I can't live on air forever. However, it's most important and nothing says it like putting your money where your mouth is, like you stated that my investors are the most important thing here. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to do everything to give them that security. That's that. And, and you know, what's funny is that that is refreshing. That shouldn't be. And it's right. wonderful that you understand that in business as a business owner, that this is how my investors need to hear that from me. They need to know how, how, how I feel about that. And that's, but that is not how most people do business. Uh, yeah. And I think it's unfortunate because like I passively invest into deals too, right? So I'm not always a sponsor on all of my investments, but the deals that I'm passively invested into, like the sponsors are taking the fees and that's fine, but I'm not getting my return. So now next time I go to invest with them, I'm probably going to remember that. And so right. look, I think that the way to build a sustainable business and to be successful when you are trying to syndicate dollars or raise capital 
is to treat your investors well because they'll keep coming back to you and they'll keep putting their money back into your deals. Um, you know, a lot of my investors on this Marietta deal, I just returned a big check to them in April, March or April um, from a deal I exited in the middle of COVID. They had nowhere else to place it. And now they're coming back to me. They're like, okay, well, I'm going to put that. And I also was going to put another $100,000 in. So I'm going to combine it and I'm going to put all of that into this next deal. So that's really the goal, right? You don't, it's a lot harder for me to go out and raise capital from a new investor than it is for me to just treat my current investors well and maintain that relationship. Yeah. And you know, that, that is so true. And a lot of times people lose sight of that because they're too busy looking at, you know, they're, they're being a keyboard warrior, which, you know, everything that I heard you say is that, you know, you're underwriting a hundred deals before you take action in a market so that you know that what you're taking action on is really a good market. But it's so true because a lot of people look at it and go, okay, I put it under contract. I know that I paid more than retail and I know that needs 25, you know, basis points to CapEx. And I, you know, all those things that make you and I cringe, right? But, but they're out there, they're, they're putting a projection out there that you and I can see from here that it's not going to work. Yeah. But they, and they've used and abused that investor to the point that that's a one shot deal. And it's, yeah. it's not great for our community because we as, as syndicators are looking at it going, gosh, somebody should need to put that guy out of our misery. <laughs> down, right? It makes it a lot harder for us to raise our capital, even though we're not underwriting anywhere in the same realm. Um, so, you know, that's actually another thing that I do with my investors is I let them use me as a resource. Um, so when I have so many investors, when they're looking at a deal, they send it to me and they ask me and I, look, I am not licensed in anything. I have no like CPA, CFA, none of those licenses. So I make it very clear to them. I'm not going to give you investment advice because I don't know. I don't have, you don't, I know enough to be dangerous and you definitely don't want to rely on me for that. But what I can do is I can point them to, Hey, here's the questions I would ask and understand when you're investing so that you know how the sponsor is looking at it. And it may not be an issue, but it's something you should at least consider. And the first question I always tell them to ask is, how much capital is the GP side putting into this deal? Um, because for me as an investor, that's a non-starter almost. Um, you have to have a very, very compelling reason as to why you're not putting capital in um, if I'm investing with you. And look, when people start out, they maybe don't have 50 or 100,000 to invest. I don't actually care that much about the number. What I care about is that you're putting something meaningful to you into the deal. And I, I and I believe I, I completely agree with you there. But I take it one step further, and I do care because if you don't have fifty or a hundred to put in the deal, how are you going to be able to sit there and wait for well, us to get our return while you live on air? Right. Well, and that's actually the other thing that Ellie and I were just talking about this yesterday because. Um, one of the reasons I think we're one of the few sponsors that's willing to forego our fees is because neither of us uses this money to eat. Like this isn't how we pay our bills. And so we're very lucky in that way right. that we right. are not depending on this for right. like, I'm not choosing between like my kid's diapers and your return as an investor, right? right. Like, I can right. still have both. So both of us are very, very privileged in that way that we have the ability to, I could not make any money for a hundred years and still be okay. Obviously I'm not in it to not make money, but if that's the way the market moves, I have that ability to pivot. 
but you know that's that's an important thing and the other thing that i heard you say which i want to point out is incredibly important for my listeners to understand and this is the kind of people you want to want to attach yourself to guys is someone that just said i will look at another deal and i will put the questions out there so that they can have the answers that i would want if i got in that deal and that's the yeah. thing that you find with professionals that's the thing that you find with people that are at the top of this game guys is people that want you to understand every deal, not just understand my deal, not yeah. just understand this is the one I got. This is the one we should, this is the only thing you should be thinking about because yeah. a smarter investor is a better investor. And if somebody's bringing you a deal and saying, Hey, what do you think about this deal over here in Oklahoma? That's a, that's a tremendous compliment because they're trusting you. It means that you've earned their trust. There's a reason why they're bringing this to you. And instead of just shooting all the holes in it or saying, don't do it, you're yeah. actually educating your investor and bringing them from a starter company or a starter investor to a more sophisticated investor, which means that they are going to be with you for a long time. Absolutely. And to your point, I don't, I don't ever think that my deals are the only good deal for any of my investors. I think there's a hundred other great syndicators out there or great operators out there who my investors should be looking at investing with. And look, I am very lucky too that my investor database, they're loyal, they refer people to me. And so for me, capital is like almost never my biggest concern when I am doing a deal, because if you find a great deal, capital comes to you, it will find you. Um, I think the bigger thing for me is that I'm at a point now where I actually interview my investors and if they're not a good fit for me, then I don't let them into my deals. It has to go both ways at this point. It's not a one way relationship because I want it to be a repeat relationship. And it's not fun for anybody. If you have an investor in a deal who is not absolutely on board with the deal when it starts out, because especially if things go bad, like a worldwide pandemic, for example, um, you want investors who are excited, who believe in the deal as much as you do. And so when you can get to a point where you are not accepting all capital just because it knocks on your door, I think you're just in a better position in general because your investors know at every turn, whatever happens, even if it's a worst case or a bad scenario, they know that it's like a hundred times worse for you as a sponsor because you've already tried to mitigate some of that risk for them. Well, and then the other thing too, I mean, and, and, and this is important and I want to ask you a follow-up question to this, but it's also important because then you're spending your time where you as a sponsor should spend their, your time and that's worried about the deal, not dealing with Chuck and his brother's sister's <laughs> uncle's question about what happens if Jimmy moves out of apartment 103. Right. You know? Yes. Uh, but so what are some of the questions that you ask your investors that give you a feel for the new guy mm -hmm. Or not even necessarily the new guy, but the guy that's going to be, or the gal that's going to be a good fit for your deal. Yeah. So the first question I really try to get to the bottom of is like what their investment goals are. Um, so if I have an investor that's telling me, oh, well, I saw a deal with like a 10% cap rate in, you know, so-and-so's portfolio just last month. Why are you going in with like a sub five cap? I already pretty much know that we're either you don't understand how markets work or we're just not really a great fit for each other. Um, and so usually what I do is I start diving into more questions about it and say, oh, okay, a 10 cap in which market? Um, Mobile, Alabama. 
okay, what's the job growth in mobile? Okay, yeah. what kind of assets are there? You know, and you kind of get in deeper into those. And then I like to explain the difference and say, look, my markets are not mobile Alabama. I can get a 10 cap. I might even be able to get a 12 cap there because in my markets, there's not a single broker that won't take my call. They know who I am. They know I have a reputation for closing. They know I have a reputation for saying what I'm going to do. And not just closing, I typically close on time or early if I can to try to establish that reputation. So there's not a single broker in the markets that I operate in that won't take my call. There's probably not a whole lot of brokers in any of the markets I want to be in that wouldn't take my call. And I think that that's important because I get those deals before everybody else does because right. it's easier for them if they repeat transact with me and if their seller chooses me as the buyer. Right. Um, and so, so you take the school teacher approach. Let okay. me ask you an embarrassing question. Let me see what you know so that we can get to this so that we can then evaluate, right? Right. No, no. I didn't say you were dumb, but you don't have a good answer for this. So <laughs> you know why I started doing this is because I realized that there's so much information and so many like programs and gurus out there that focus on things that are actually not what my investors want to know about. Um, you know, the read a, and I'll give you two really good examples of that are cap rate and IRR. Yeah, they're when, not related. No, and when I get like, so someone will ask me like, oh, what's the IRR of this project? And I'll say, you know, 14%. And they'll say, but that seems really low. Really low for what? Let's define why you think it's low. Right. Um, it was low compared to the deal I did three years ago. Yeah, I mean, we did 20% deals all day long three years ago. Right. Um, today's market, that's just not where we are today. Um, okay, but I just think that the IRR needs to be higher in Orlando or Marietta or wherever, right? Okay, great. What kind of asset are you comparing it to? Is Are you looking at another A minus, B plus asset? Are you looking at a C asset? Because it's a risk adjusted return, right? You're not, you can't go into a D asset and expect the same IRR as a B asset because you're taking on way more risk. Right. Um, the deal size matters. I think that there's, and then which IRR are you looking at? Are you looking at the levered IRR, the unlevered IRR, like the project level IRR, the investor return, which IRR do you want to know about? But really what I found is when investors start asking me about IRR, what they actually want to know about is, the average annualized return after exit. So when you add up all the cash I've given you over the whole period, that's what the number they're looking for is. Right. Um, and so I, I don't necessarily take the school teacher approach. I try <laughs> to, what I try to do is get to the bottom of why they're asking me a specific question. So I make sure I'm answering what they're asking me. Right. And that's one of the things that we've done as well that I think has worked out really well for us is we, you know, we have two ki kinds of clients. We have those that are after cash flow. And we have those that are after growth. And yep. and if you put the wrong guy in, he might be a great investor and he might be savvy and he might know all this stuff. But if you put him in the wrong asset or put her in the wrong asset, you're going to wind up with an unhappy customer. So you are very correct to understand that not every deal fits every person, nor should it. Yeah. And it, I mean, and that's what I tell my investors too, is look, my deals are not going to typically be like home run deals. I hope they are, but we don't underwrite them like that. I'm not going to tell you they are. We're hitting like solid doubles. That's what I look for when I invest. Um, right. If we hit a home run, great. No one gets mad at me for giving them more money than I told them this project was going to give them. Um, but what I do want 
investors to know is like your diversification within your personal portfolio is important. And I don't know anything about your personal portfolio. So right. you need to reach out to your professionals. You can send them my deal. Like, yes, it says confidential and don't forward it. And you shouldn't forward it to like your PTA meeting. But if you want to forward it to your financial advisors, your attorneys, your CPAs, anybody who is there to make, help you make the correct decision for your portfolio, absolutely. I'm, people look at my deal all day long and it still passes the test for most CPAs, attorneys. So I have no reason to believe it wouldn't for any specific investor, right. but it may not. It may be not risky enough or too risky for their portfolio, or they may be over leveraged in real estate. My financial advisor basically calls me and yells at me every time I do a deal. He's like, you're doing what now? And I was like, yeah. well, look, I'm just, we're going to put in, you know, X amount of dollars, whatever it's like 200, 300,000 into this deal. He's like, no, 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 you're not diverse. We need to put you more into stocks and bonds. I, I have the same conversation with mine. They ever, they, she asked me last time, she said, what is your plan B? And I said, again, if I have to, <laughs> plan B, I said, you know, that's like getting on a passenger aircraft with a parachute. What do you, I mean, you know, I mean you're Fair. either in this or you're not. And, uh, yep. and you know, I, I was talking with someone about the stock market and they're like, why don't you invest? And I said, I only invest in things I completely understand. That's the other thing. So that's the other metric that I make sure my investors, if you can't explain how my deal works back to me, then it's not a good fit. Um, so what I will typically do in that situation is tell my investor, like, listen, it's obvious that this is definitely not a good fit as of today, but let's work together and let's keep talking about it so you can understand it more. And then maybe the next one's a better fit, but you should never invest into something you can't explain. So, uh, so guys, not only is she going to school you, but there will be a test later. So it doesn't matter if she says it's not like a teacher approach. Okay, it's I, a am teacher approach. Teacher. I am the school teacher <laughs> approach. But you know what I found? It actually makes for happier investors. Everybody's well, happier. And, and the reality is that is exactly true. And that's one of the things that I do find with the, with the seasoned operators in, in the multifamily space is we're not you know, we're not here to just do our deal. We're here to educate because a smarter investor is going to have, you know, less, less problems and less problems being the SEC is less involved. And there's going to be all this churn in the media and all this stuff that happens. And, you know, we all know what happened with the financial fallout of 08 and why that happened. And, and we, those of us that are in the business that have been doing this for a long time, we're sitting here going, guys, why why wouldn't we educate when those that have a D class investment painted up like a B, you know, they're in it for the sale. They're here. They're, they're, they're trying this out. They're, they're back. They're fond of real estate again, instead of those of us that if that's all we've done, you know? And yeah. so, so that is guys, if you can learn that, that's the, that is the key to a seasoned operator is all the things that Ben has been saying about what she does, how she does it, because that's the point really is to be able to educate, to be able to make sure that you're dealing with the right people, to make sure that you're, you're dealing with the right sponsors. You know, mm -hmm. if anybody will take anybody, that's, that's a sign of desperation, you know, and that's, yeah. that's not what you want in a sponsor of a deal. I mean, we've all seen it, right? Yeah. And you and I have seen, I mean, I think back to when I first started doing this and, and first started investing and doing things like that. Now I'm able to spot this from, you know, a couple of states away 
But yeah. I remember when I first started out at 20 years old, I wasn't quite that savvy. And yet we see that level of investor coming back into the market, right? Um, yes. And it really terrifies me. Uh, I think that the biggest challenge that I see is, uh, and I, I, I see this often, right, on like all these like Facebook groups or whatever, where everybody kind of knows each other. It's a very small world. Um, but I see people who I know have not really done a deal also running like these programs on how to invest in apartments and do what we do. And listen, this is not a passive activity. This is not a part-time investment. If you were going to be like an owner or operator, I spend a hundred hours a week doing only this. I do nothing else. I'm not an engineer who does this on the weekends. That's not my role, right? <laughs> right. And, and you're not doing it without your own money in the deal. You know, oh, God. Yes. Uh, and, and that's, you know, where we're doing ground up development, we're obviously we're buried in this thing for months and months, and months before our investors even see it. Similar to you doing your market research and, yeah. and those kinds of things. But, you know, guys, those are the things that that will that will separate the professionals from, you know, Warren Buffett's uh, uh, statement of, you know, you, you, you find out who's swimming naked when the tide goes out. You know, yeah. we're getting, I mean, this, this whole environment that we're in right now is the tide going out and you're going to see that people that, you know, everybody says, oh, this is COVID underwritten, right? Uh, I'm going to guess that your underwriting hasn't changed that much. My underwriting hasn't changed that much because we have stress test our deals anyway, because we know that in our lifetime, there's going to be other things even bigger than this that are going to come along. And we're going to want to weather that storm without having to come up with excuses and things about, well, why didn't you see that coming? I mean, nobody could have guessed this pandemic, but nobody could have guessed World War II was coming either. You know, I mean, (laughs) Yeah. And you know what I will say is um, we haven't changed so much our underwriting from a stress test perspective as we have from pulling back on the optimism of what we think we can actually do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it has changed in that regard. And the other thing I will say about COVID that was different from the 07, 08 downturn, at least for from my experience, was um, this actually affected every market almost overnight. Yeah. Uh, so I think that that, and none of us have any experience with dealing with a pandemic, a worldwide pandemic. So right. I think that that is actually the one challenge that we are currently navigating. And I think too, we've seen a lot of um, government mandates in, I mean, just nationwide, right? Like yeah. we recently had a federal moratorium on evictions, which has never really affected real estate in the way that it is today. So Mm -hmm. I think that, but I think to your point, it's people who are able to navigate and pivot. um, I think that's what is more crucial or important. Like I actually have one of my um, colleagues, he's always says, uh, and he started investing with me passively before he became one of my partners. And he said, Vina, you know, I'm investing in the jockey, not the horse. Um, and right. I think that that's actually, I love that analogy so much because I think that that is true. You want someone who is going to remember in 07 and 08 what it was like doing workouts with banks. Like yeah. I had, I, I was joining corporate 
America in the real estate sector. I had a quarter of a billion dollars ish in my portfolio. And I don't know, by the way, whose idea it was to give me that much responsibility at like 22, <laughs> 23. It was ridiculous. Um, and so, you know, and at that time, it felt like my money, even though it was institutional funds, it felt like my money because it was right. like my first real job. And I was like, not sleeping at night. And now I know what it means to really not sleep at night when it is your I, own sleep. But back then, I, I felt it was right. And so, but I just think that there's a lot of people that have kind of popped up because real estate is sexy. It's glamorous. You know, you're going to make all this money. But what people don't see is how much you actually put into making that money and the experience that you need to make that. Um, Cause there's so many, how many syndicators have you seen pop up in the last two years? Right. Yeah. Well, Every indicator. Yeah. And, and you know, we, I remember back in 07 and 08, it wasn't syndication. That wasn't the buzzword. It was tenants in common. Right. Yeah. Yep. Everybody was in a tick and now, yep. Because of what happened in 08 and some of the things that happened with ticks, now ticks are not, yeah, you don't really want to do a tenants in common. Well, you don't really want to do a dumb deal. That's that's what we're really trying to say. Here. And that'll hold true for the end of time. Right, of right. Time. But now we've got syndication is, is, is the buzzword and everything, but it's still the same thing. It's, it's the pooling of assets. It's the mm -hmm. pooling of capital uh, to do deals. And you know, you're so correct that those that have been through this, I mean, I've been building for 25 years. Uh, I know it looks like longer, but that's just what happens when you're in development and construction, right? But, this is the gray hair you get from doing deals because that's, that's, right, that's, that's right. what it actually is. But, you know, it's, it's, that, it's that understanding of the market. And, you know, I, I applaud you for being able to look at other markets. I'm stuck in Idaho, and I can't imagine what it takes. I've, been, I've lived here for 40 years. I've done deals here for 25 I cannot imagine what it would take to go learn a market to the level that I would need to feel comfortable. I mean, you're sitting here saying 18 months and I'm going, this lady is so smart. If you, it took me 40 years, right? I thought you were going to say I'm so crazy and I've cut. Oh, no, you're smart. You're smart because you can go in there and, and you're, you are, you're underwriting a hundred deals in a market to get comfortable with the market and, and everything where, you know, the market that you came from, you've, you've done a hundred deals. And so you have that understanding and, and those are all the marks of a, and, and then you have the scars of, of the 07, 08, of the learning curve there. Those, those are different kind of marks of a, of a successful investor, right? But, but the reality is, is that we know and understand the markets and we're able to guide our investors and our investment through that because success is what we're looking for. And you're always going to have, whether it's, you know, nobody, nobody anticipated a worldwide pandemic, but nobody anticipated 08 and nobody anticipated you know, 9-11, and, and it, it, it is the true mark of a, of a survivor and, and an intelligent market analysis that we can survive that and we can move through that. And it doesn't mean, it just like you said, you know, maybe there's a bank workout involved, but how else were you going to learn that? I didn't see that on the college course registration. No, yeah, I did not even. Bank workout one hundred and one, right? You know, I, I mean, I wish they had taught me that. It would have really prepared me for the real world. So I actually, I took the shortcut into real estate because I come from a real estate family. Like my family has made their money in real estate. My mom actually is the one who started our investment company, and so uh, my family's investments. I, they gave me a leg up, and honestly, it built a really nice foundation for me to be able to kind of 
move to that next level. But, and my undergrad degree was in finance and I don't use probably most of it in today's world that I learned in college, but it would have been great to have a bank workout 101 class. I would have loved it because I would have known what I'm looking at and what I'm looking for. And I mean, I did take it just in real life. Yeah. Well, and, and those are the those are the lessons that we remember the most, right? Those are the things that are the best for us. And and you know, the reality is that being able to see and go through and understand that is is fantastic. You know, uh, I, you and I have very similar backgrounds. My great grandfather was selling real estate before the depression. Uh, okay. My grandmother, my mother, uh, myself, my son. I mean, it's you know, it's it's what happens in our family. Mm-hmm. Um, and my father was a builder, but you know, having that legacy, it also, it also puts pressure on you because they're, they succeeded at it, mm-hmm. you know? So you've got to be, I mean, it's like falling off a horse, right? I mean, it's the family yeah. game. It's like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, back up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I think to your point too, is like, you know, I have great resources to be able to bounce ideas off of as, cause they understand it fundamentally, right? Like right. my husband is, not even remotely involved in real estate. I always joke because like, I don't think he even knows where we own any of our assets. So if I die, I like beg my sister to help him find everything we have. It's going to be an Easter egg hunt. (laughs) Yeah, right. And so, um, you know, it's nice to be able to have someone that you can trust who has your best interest at heart too when you're making decisions. Who can kind of help you see things maybe from a different lens or a different perspective. And of course I have partners that are also great to bounce ideas off of, but it's different than when it's mom and dad, you know? Yeah. Well, then I could sit here and talk with you for days. This has been a very engaging conversation. I want to wrap this up though with, with another one last question. Where can people find you? Where can they, where can they track you down in the world of social media and all of those kind of nifty things to see what you're up to next? follow you and and be able to 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 get more knowledge on your deals yeah so you can go to my website vive funds v-i-v-e funds.com um otherwise you can find me on facebook i'm pretty sure i'm on like twitter and instagram but like i never use them um you know i'm like an old lady so i like facebook uh, so you can find me on there you can like those cute grandchildren <laughs> what's that so you look at those cute grandchildren Yeah, basically, I'm like that old lady. So, uh, you know, Facebook is my social media drug of choice. Um, But if you go to my website, um, the contact button there, you'll be able to reach out to me via email. I'm always happy to set up a call if someone has questions or if I can help them in their, you know, career foray into real estate. Well, guys, I hope you've been taking notes because this was action-packed. We got a lot of information. If anything... This should highlight what a true professional sponsor looks like. I mean, if it wasn't completely apparent in everything that she said about how she handles other people's money, I couldn't make it any clearer for you. <laughs> so, guys, I, wanna, I want you to help me thank Vienna Jetty for being on the show, giving us her advice and her information. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Join us again at the Real Estate Rundown. We'll talk to you later. <laughs>